Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child and adolescent psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association for Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioral and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access the references mentioned here. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Jordana Silverstein, who is a Senior Research Fellow in the Peter McMullen Centre on Statelessness in the Melbourne Law School. Jordana is a cultural historian who researches histories of statelessness, Australian child refugee policies, and Australian Jewish history, focusing on questions of belonging, nationalism, identity, sexuality, and memory. Welcome, Jordana. Um, I'd like to talk with you about your most recent book published this year, entitled Cruel Care, A History of Children at Our Borders, about the treatment of child refugees or child asylum seekers in Australia. We know that the plight of refugees fleeing from war, persecution or climate change is a key issue of our times and cannot be ignored because of its impact on children in Australia and around the world. Thanks so much for having me to speak with you today, Ruth. And you're absolutely right. It's um, such a key issue and it's such a big global issue that um, there's resonances, you know, between Australia and other countries around the world. But there's, yeah, the real particularities of how Australia treats um, refugees and treats child refugees and child asylum seekers. And, yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking with you today about it. Good. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us about the Peter McMullen Centre on Statelessness and the focus of your work there. Yeah, so I've been working at the centre for a couple of years and basically the centre is based in the Melbourne Law School. So most of the people in the centre um, are law academics and lawyers, um, working on different aspects um, of researching statelessness but also teaching about statelessness um, and really focused on public-facing work that tries to think about how we can end statelessness. Um, and so that my work there um, is focused on the histories of statelessness. Oh. I'm looking at two sort of from the history from two, two different sides. One part of it is an oral history project where I'm interviewing people who were stateless when they came to Australia in the 20th century um, and so they're now citizens of Australia, but sort of seeing what their experiences of statelessness are and what their insights into statelessness are. And the other aspect is um, thinking about government, the way that governments have thought, Australian governments have thought about statelessness and sort of tracing through an archival project, looking at government archives and government, you know, the bureaucracy and politicians and how have they thought about statelessness and how have they thought about stateless people. It's extraordinary. I had no idea that there was that kind of resource because it's really a statelessness 
uh, it goes together with being a refugee, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about the millions of stateless people who are going to arrive on the shores of various countries and have already arrived. Yeah, so a lot of stateless people um, aren't refugees and they a lot of stateless people will always remain um, sort of in situ or in the countries in which they're born, um, it, whether it's, it might be in refugee camps but it might not be. A lot, you know, some countries um, will have sort of, uh, well, they'll have sort of uh, discriminatory uh citizenship policies that based on ethnicity or, or nationality that prevent people getting citizenship. But there's also often gender-based um, citizenship policies. So, for instance, some there are numerous countries where the mother can't pass on her citizenship and that will create stateless people who will never um, leave the country in which they're born. Um, so there's all these different kinds of ways in which people can become stateless, but absolutely like there's such enmeshed issues around thinking around borders, around control of populations, around governments deciding for people who they will be and how they will be governed. Um, that yeah, there's all of this work that I've done is really interconnected. Yes. Your your book, Cruel Care, is a meticulous account of what one might call the political and administrative machinery that is at work in government to control the borders at all costs. In the book, you describe what you call oral history interviews with the people involved in policy making, including former immigration ministers, public servants, and ministerial advisors. What comes across to me reading the book is how these people seem so enmeshed in their administrative tasks that it does not seem to occur to them that their very same national interests in making warfare in faraway places has contributed to the refugee crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really is so spot on and really gets to the heart of a lot of what I'm looking at in this book, which is the people, policymakers, politicians become so um, consumed by their own personal histories and their own um, focus and explanations of, of what happens that they don't see the stories of refugees. They don't think about what has caused someone to be a refugee and what has brought them um, to come to Australia or to want to come to Australia. Um, they don't think about the fact that Australia being involved in in these wars and perpetrating these wars creates refugees. We, we are, like, that's part of what we do is we create refugees. Um, so it's really, I think, you know, it's absolutely right and that was something I was trying to think through in the book and try to point out to audiences is to say what would it look like if we thought about you know, even the concept of a refugee crisis in new ways, to not see the people coming, the refugees themselves aren't the crisis, the border control and the keeping people out is what causes crisis, is what causes the violence and, and the problems. Um, so really, yeah, trying to sort of shift the frame um, of reference and say let's stop focus, let's ask people not to focus on their own concerns but to think about the other histories that are at play here. Absolutely. And the other actions that are at play, I mean, it's almost as though there's a kind of blinkers on, uh, you know, we're not going to go there. There are areas we're not going to talk about. We're not going to talk about Australia's involvement in the Iraq war that really created, as we know, a, a complete destabilisation of that whole part of the, of the Middle East. Exactly. So, and then we've had the sort of knock-on effects into all sorts of other situations and people. Yep. 
So it's it's something about what happens to administrators and administration, you know, with the, the, the old story about being so narrowly focused and not looking at the, the broader picture. Yes. And that sort of links on with how in your book you present the dilemmas and tragedies of child refugee processing, which is a terrible term. Mm. Think about it. I mean, it's like processing. Um, and you do, you you describe it within the broad arc of what you call settler colonial Australia, which is very interesting, and its impact on the lives of First Nations people. You also acknowledge how our personal histories shape our sense of belonging and nationhood with respect to your own grandparents who were Jewish Holocaust survivors arriving in Australia as stateless refugees. Can you tell us more about how you perceive these in interconnected threads. Yeah, so absolutely, they're all, as you say, they're very interconnected. So what I'm trying to think through in this book is to think about how our histories, our personal, um, our familial, our community and our national histories shape the way we see things. So in my case, yeah, I'm, I'm the grandchild of, of um, two, two of my grandparents who were stateless refugees and Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. Um, and that very much shapes, you know, my relationship with uh, this country, uh, with living on Aboriginal land um, and with understanding, you know, with trying to think through why does why do governments and why do policymakers do what they do. So, you know, I'm very, you know, in terms of this settler colonial history, the, the idea behind sort of describing Australia as a settler colony, um, in a settler colony, you know, the colonisers come to stay and they replace, seek to replace the Indigenous people on their land. Um, so that continues into the present. Australia it remains a settler colony and that project um, of trying to displace Aboriginal people through all sorts of incredible violence um, very much continues into the present. And there's, you know, a million different examples that we could give of that and that listeners I think will be probably be familiar with. Um so trying to think through, you know, how does that settler colonial history then become played out? You know, it's a it, maintaining a settler colony is a constant process. It's never done. Um, it's never as in it's never finished. So policymakers are always trying to control what happens on this land and who is on this land. So the two parts to the settler colony is firstly getting rid of Aboriginal people, but then replacing them on the land and deciding who should be able to be here. And so that's why um, Australia has always had these uh, race-based immigration controls or racist immigration controls. We used to have a formal white Australia policy. Um, and while it's formally, you know, was abolished in the 1970s, it, of course, it's, cut. you know, it's it's uh, key um, main ways of thinking um, and enacting ref um, uh, immigration policy absolutely continue and we still have race-based thinking um, about immigration policy and in, about, you know, control over who live on this land. As, you know, John Howard so famously said, you know, we will decide who comes to this country in the circumstances in which they come, which is just such a neat encapsulation of really what is the truth. And everyone was outraged at the time, but it's the truth of what migration policy looks like. So I think, you know, what I'm showing in this book is how these kinds of histories um, come to bear on what, um, how child refugees will be treated in the present. And so, you know, policymakers really focus on themselves. And I show throughout the book 
how these policymakers talk about how hard it is for them, particularly immigration ministers, love to talk about how hard it is for them to be in these positions and the real struggles that they have. And they're really, um, you know, using um, the kind of emotional language and really trying to say, like, locate themselves as the problem and as the people who are really struggling in this situation, which is such an amazing flip on, you know, if we think about, you know, an immigration minister having to decide, you know, deciding, as you say, like who should be, when when the people are being processed, um, when people are being decided, will they be allowed to stay here? Um, having that incredible power, and the immigration minister does have incredible power over individual people's lives, um, to say that it's hard for them to have that power is um, really quite, I think, a distortion of of what's going on um, and really maintains that focus on white Australia as being in power but suffering through having that power. Yes, it's fascinating that you 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 mention that because it's it's what it really suggests is a is a very powerful self-referential approach. It's very it's very interesting. It happens in a lot of organizations that have to deal with very tricky things. That the, the, the organization, whether it's a finance organization or whatever it is, and they've, they've done bad things or they haven't done what they've needed to do, and they then get into the woe is me slash us. You know, they become very sort of self-referential and they want to be seen as um, they are the ones who are suffering, as you say, and they yeah. are the ones that really need attention. Now, in reality, they probably do because it isn't a ghastly job. And if only we could change the conversation and the framework, we could have the right sort of conversation with them so that they don't have to become closed and self-referential. But, you know, I mean, there's so many, I think there are so many sort of um, iconic statements, as you mentioned, the John Howard statement about who will come, we will decide. And then similarly, his statement about the children overboard. I mean, no, no, that will never go. I mean, we, we will live with that forever. Yeah. Um, that really suggests that the people who come here, they're stateless, but they're actually rather wily and and have bad intentions. And and you can you can you know the the father of the nation can can tell everybody the children of the nation that you know he's protecting them from these wily interlopers. I'm putting it rather strongly, but I think that was what was intended, and it had the appropriate effect actually. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think yeah, when John Howard says we don't want parents like this coming here, yeah. he's saying that he knows how to parent better than than these people. The white Australian knows how to parent better than a refugee would. Yeah. Um, and it really, in that way, you know, to link against the, the colonial aspect, it really mirrors the stolen generations, which was, again, this other moment of government saying that Aboriginal parents don't know how to parent um, and the government knows better than them and has to rescue these children from these terrible parents. Yes. Um, and so this is the cruel care, that the, the title of, of the title of my book. This is, yeah, when governments claim this authority and it's this white, this sort of white saviour, um, incredible violence um, that serves to racialize um, communities to, yeah, cast whole communities as pernicious and as bad people. Yes, yes. So and I was just thinking also as a child and adult psychotherapist, I'm most concerned with helping children and adults to find their own voice, to be able to speak about their emotions and experience and to be heard. And it's striking in your book that you mention in the various archives you examined how the voices of children are absent 
as though the children themselves have somehow never been present. And you also mention uh, that in the whole period considered by the book, children, in fact, make up half of the world's refugees. So there are these two things of the children who cannot be heard, but mm. so that while the ad administrators are doing their job, half of the refugees of the world are made up of children. I mean, what, yeah. what conclusions can one draw from this? Yeah, I think this is really incredible um, silencing um, of the of the children and um, this real idea that that you know we'd all be familiar with of that children don't know how to speak for themselves, that children don't know how to represent themselves, um, that decisions have to be made for children, um, that their children are incapable, uh, which of course we know to be false. That children are very good at advocating for themselves um, and will, will speak for themselves and it's a question of adults listening to them. But it's always so notable um, in the language uh, when you study these things that, you know, we talk about refugees and then child refugees, um, that it's the children are separated out and it's refugee, you know, that adults sort of become this invisible, invisible you know, norm. Um, but, yeah, you know, there's, there's these huge numbers of child refugees um, who are in existence. And so, you know, one of the things I looked at to, to offer one example um, is some of the, in the archives, um, in the National Archives branch in Melbourne, there's um, a, the um, sort of a documentation by social workers who were responsible for looking after so-called unaccompanied minors um, and in Australia, uh, mi migrants and refugees, children who who come here without a guardian, uh, the immigration minister is made their guardian, and the minister then um, delegates the powers um, of guardianship to uh, all sorts of other authorities. Um, and so, in, in archives that are held, uh, some of the archival papers, uh, there's these notes from these social workers who are looking after children in group homes. Um, and the kinds of things they say about children, are, I mean, as a non-social worker, are extraordinary, you know, was, and, and they're extraordinary to read. And I have, of course, talked to social worker friends about it and they talk about, yeah, like these are the kinds of notes that are that are made about people. But it's really, I think, in a sense, you know, I think it's also a good lesson, really, for everybody uh, to think about what what do we say about another person and what we think at one point are confidential notes, um, but will one day be read by other people? And you also hear this of people, you know, today accessing met their own medical records to see how doctors have described them. Um, what are the kinds of terms through which people describe these children? And what you really see is this description of these children. There's really no sense of the children themselves um, in these records. There's no, you know, that they're often like brief notes, but there's really no space given um, for the children to speak back um, to to these people who are controlling their lives in this foreign country. It's, it's really extraordinary. It's as though the social workers have become the arm of the immigration authority and have lost it in that sense. I mean, social workers, you know, generally do very good work, but it's, it's as though they, they they can't allow themselves to be the social workers they, and they have to mm -hmm. be uh, of the, they have to use the voice or the terms yes. of, the, of the immigration authorities. Yeah. And I think it's such an important point as well, because 
yeah, this is part of how border control works is it farms it out to all these, all other people to take responsibility for it that us, you know, I work at a university and oftentimes, you know, there's um, international students who have certain visa requirements um, and people be, lecturers uh, might be encouraged to dob in their students to the immigration authorities if they're not doing the right thing. You know, yeah, social workers, you know, to dob in people um, and, you know, if it's, it's seen as the responsible thing to do, but it really, yeah, it's forcing people um, to take up this role of border control, uh, which is absolutely not the job that should be done uh, really by anyone. Absolutely. I suppose in that in that connection that one of the most challenging elements in your book is, is the discussion about uh, what is in the best interests of the child, a concept that started out in the mid-20th century with a very specific meaning, but which appears to have become traduced by justifying the cruel actions of the incarceration of children, such as in offshore processing, as though as though this could be in the children's best interests. Can you say more about this? Yeah, so it's something, this concept of best interests of the child is just used all over the place. Um, everybody knows, knows it as a phrase. It just gets really deployed in all kinds of, you know, not just immigration, obviously, but just all kinds of um, social policy and social action. Um, and what, it's incredibly flimsy, right? Like, how do you decide, how does another person decide what is in the best interest of a child? Um, how do you make that decision for another person um, as a general point? So that was something I wanted to look at in the book is sort of a general point of what is this concept and how can another person decide for a child um, what is in their best interest? But then we also see this really pernicious um, and violent use of, of the phrase where um, because the immigration minister is the guardian for some children, um, they stake that claim. But then we're, it's, it's really quite central, um, and I chart this in the book, it's quite central to what, is the, what Australia has done around stopping the boats. Um, so we've seen this growth of this narrative that boats of refugees coming to Australia need to be stopped uh, because it's in children's best interest because if the boats aren't stopped, the ch children might drown. Um, so what happens? The practicality of that is that a boat of refugees, uh, and it's happening quite often, um, is, you know, this is never reported uh, or very rarely reported unless it can be politicised in particular ways. But boats are still coming um, and the Navy is out there on the high sea, you know, at the edge of, of the Australian maritime border, turning boats back and sending people back to the violence that they are fleeing. Um which in many circumstances is illegal under international law. It's, you know, sending refugees, you you're not allowed to send refugees back to the harm they're fleeing. Um, but so they, it's framed as we need this border control because this is to help save the children, um, which is making, again, you know, it makes this decision for the children, for their parents, um, about this is what's in their best interest. It reinforces this idea that the parents and the children couldn't possibly know for themselves what is in their best interest, that it is white government who knows better um, than other people um, what it, what they need to, what needs to happen for them. Um, it sets the government up as a rescuer, even as they enact incredible violence um, to do these things. Um, and it really, yeah, further furthers this incredible cruelty um to walk towards the these children um 
So it's really, you know, it, and it's often said, you know, the immigration ministers will, will talk at different times about, well, in the best interest of the child, we can't have the child um, in, you know, a, a, an immigration detention centre or an immigration immigration prison. Um, but if we tell them, you know, in advance that, so yes, that, you know, we can't have them in the, in the detention centre, but we can't separate them from their parents. So that means that the parents might need to come out. But if we have that as the policy, then people will deliberately bring their children on boats um, and that puts them in harm's way. So this is an argument that was sort of made in the in the 2000s when boats were getting through. Um, so in order to prevent, uh, in order to have that, what's the so-called pull factor, which is such an awful term as well. Um, so in, basically in order to discourage um, children from getting on boats, we're going to say that, no, you're not going to get out of detention just because you're a child. You're going to be locked up. So we're going to keep families together in detention. Um, we're going to deliberately uh, imprison children in order to attempt to dissuade other children from getting on boats. Um, and that's something that comes through all the time. So it's this real, we are going to treat children as badly as we can in order to dissuade other people from getting on boats. And it's it's an incredible logic. Um that has incredible violence to it. Absolutely. I mean, I want to ask you a bit later on about the the one of the other uh, justifications is about fighting the, the the traffickers, the human traffickers, and and but I'll, I'll just ask you about that a little bit later. But I, but just following on from what you're saying, that there's a this kind of fearful problem is that the notion of the child can become so wrapped up in the notion of the refugee as interloper that they are perceived as rightfully losing what we may consider to be their child or even human entitlements. And I think you, you're probably aware of this extraordinary um, event that took place recently in the UK uh, at an immigration centre where the, <clears throat> the immigration minister demanded that staff at an asylum seeker reception centre for children remove Mickey Mouse and Winnie the Pooh murals to make the centre less appealing for children. You know, these children should not think that they're coming into a happy place. They must know that this is a dreadful situation. And so the um, uh, the staff were tasked with having to paint it over. And reading in The Guardian, it cost the taxpayer something like £1,500 to do that. And the journalist, the UK journalist, Polly Toynbee, called this Going to War with Mickey Mouse, mm. which I think is a pretty good title. I wonder mm. what your views are about that. Yeah, I think it's it's just awful. It's this real sign of deliberate torture. I think, and I think we can't understate um, the deliberateness of, of what has gone on. Um and how it is deliberately intended to treat people so badly that they would rather go back to a war zone or go back to what they are fleeing than stay um, stay where they are. Like that's the point of this. It's, it's to dissuade future people coming, but it's also to try to send, force people to um, want to go back, um, that there's something, yeah. And I think... It's really, yeah, it feels hard to imagine. Sometimes, you know, I try to think and, and thinking, you know, about this policy making. I think about what are those meetings like? Like what happens in that room when someone says, 
we can't have children's murals um, on in the reception centre? Like, and, and does someone speak up? Is there an argument? Do people say, you know, that's hideous? Why would you remove that? You're not. Apparently no one spoke up about it. And, it, and given that it, it then became public and the press spoke up about it, uh, that was the first time people got to hear of it. So, in fact, yeah. the were pretty acquiescent to that notion. And yeah. that, that sort of also links into the unaccompanied minors, often young boys, adolescent boys, who are, who are accommodated in the UK in terrible hotels. They become the victims of crime gangs and exploitation of all kinds. And the terrifying thing is that becoming stateless seems to lead to becoming to being seen as less than human and therefore as completely disposable. Yeah, and I think this is really where we see, you know, race thinking and, and the real racism of um, these policies and this incredible um, attempts at dehumanisation, at this real way that people are treated as though um, that they shouldn't be considered um, people who have should have access to um freedom and to self-determination um and to community and to care um and it yeah it's it's really it's quite an astounding um violence and it really you know serves to just um you know yeah just just uh create these these incredible systemic problems um that take a lot to to deal with absolutely i mean i suppose this is where perhaps talking about the the human traffickers comes in because the it, it, all of these governments want to keep the 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 dialogue very narrow. They want to keep it very narrowly focused. And I and I suppose in this po- podcast we don't have an opportunity to look at all the, the politics, you know, geopolitical issues really, which is what is at the at, at the foundation of all of these problems, and the interference of all the countries in all the other areas of the world where people are suffering these terrible destabilizations and where forces beyond their control are coming in where ghastly battles are taking place. The fact is that the very people who won't allow the refugees into the West, in the general West, are the same people who have contributed to the geopolitical um, Mm. problems and destabilizations uh, through successive wars. I mean, it's been going on for, for a century or more. Yes, but that is a that is a discourse that can never be addressed. That that conversation is never to be addressed. So that everything has to stop at the point of the traffickers. And of course, we hate the traffic. Everyone hates the traffickers. Dreadful, dreadful people. Um, but you know, when you can get uh, sort of agitated about them, you cease to be able to think about how these people got onto these boats in the first place. You know, the traffickers, horrible and ghastly as they are, are taking advantage of something that had been going on for ages. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's also these ideas around who's allowed to, in quotation marks, you know, allowed to make money out of this and that traffickers who are providing a service um, that um, are, yeah, uh, you know, and and obviously, you know, taking advantage and and making money um, and demonised as they are, but yet there's incredible amounts of money being made by the people who run the companies and the individuals who run the detention centres. There's incredible amounts of money um, that's being spent um, and, keeping yeah. people imprisoned. And also wasted and exploited. You know, exactly. The, 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 the human trafficking actually takes place here as well as on. Yeah. In fact. You know, exactly. 
people are are dealing with trafficking within within Western countries as well. And that's exactly it. yeah. So it's it's this real thing of you know who where is money you know allowed to be made and where is money not allowed to be made and what what you know. Yeah, what are the discourses that are actually at play here um, and what are the flows of capital that are being enabled and are being prevented? Absolutely. And I suppose that also makes one think about the great tragedy that these children are deprived of education, of taking their place in life and suffer, in many cases, a kind of arrested development. So we're really talking about incubating major problems for the future, aren't we? Yeah, I think that we can't... um... Obviously, you know, children have incredible strength um, and in many ways, you know, will go on and have lives, but also there's incredible damage being done to people's lives. Um, They are being deprived of education. They're seeing, um, yeah, in in incredible torture. They're experiencing real deprivation um, in immigration prisons. And the so there's been a couple of inquiries conducted by the Australian Human Rights Commission um, into children in detention, and children made submissions. Um, and I so I look at some of those submissions and quote from them in the book. And the children, yeah, they talk about you know that they don't have access to showers, that they are seeing people self harm in incredible, incredibly awful ways. That children are self harming, and you know, a father at one point says, "I didn't bring my child here." Um, to learn how to kill themselves. Um, this, this is what Australia is creating. Um, and it's we should we shouldn't be surprised because this is part of Australia's history and and always has been, but we should be shocked and we should be angered um, and we should be doing something about it. Absolutely. Um, as a child psychotherapist, I take the view that we have a responsibility to all children wherever they find themselves. And our vastly narrowing world means, for example, in a completely different context, that the cheap garment we're wearing may have been made by a child worker living in extreme poverty in another part of the world. And then paradoxically, it is these same children around the world who as the next generation will be supporting us in our aging communities. I mean, the world is changing, it's smaller, the world is, and part of the world is aging. Um, Does this mean that we need to review how we construct the idea of borders in a variety of ways? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think um, borders are inherently violent. Um, They require people to be kept out. Um, and any border that exists is an act of violence, um, to, quote, to quote other people. Um, and so I think we need to take that seriously. I think that, you know, the nation state is obviously having quite a moment and that's kind of the consensus that the world has come to at the moment of how to, how to be organised. But I don't think we should see that as a settled decision. And I think we instead actually, yeah, really need to think about um, what does it mean? What what could it mean um, to get rid of these national borders? To see people's lives as more interdependent, um, to have more generosity, um, more graciousness um, across the world, to be more interested in people who are different to us, um, and not in a sort of looking down, benevolent, I want to help you way, but in a solidarity, justice filled, working together sense. Um, so, yeah, I think we do really need to rethink the very idea of the border um, within, you know, Western thinking and within colonial thinking. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's very interesting uh, work going on in Italy, which is at the brunt often of uh, refugees coming in. And I feel very poorly supported by the European community generally. Mm. But um, they, they had, I mean, they, they're toughening up and doing horrible things there as well. But um, they had some very interesting projects where they have some of these uh, uh, small, uh, very rural communities where the young people are leaving in droves because they feel there's no work for them or they're not interested in that kind of very rural life. And um, a, a number of communities have invited refugees. Many of them have come from rural environments themselves and find it easier to, to settle into these areas. And some of, those, um, some of that settling has actually been very productive uh, it's gone very well. It's a very interesting idea because otherwise those little villages would just die out. There'd be nothing left. They're just yeah. picturesque ruins on a hilltop somewhere. I mean, I think this is this is really key. Refugees are people. And yeah. I think, like, they're people who have, we all, you know, have lives and needs and wants um, and things to offer um, and need support and offer support. Um, they're just people and, and they're everywhere in the world amongst us. And and I think there's often this kind of sort of false idea created that refugees are out there and they're, you know, they might be coming to take your job or your house or they don't, and they don't have anything to offer or they're not already living, you know, in your apartment block or next door or at your workplace um, or at your community group or wherever, you know, you are. Um we're all already amongst refugees and some of us, of course, are refugees. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, this is really crude. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. They're, they're people, yeah, and they can be product, like they can be wonderful members of society, they can be not wonderful members of society, just as any of us can be. Absolutely. So I think mean, the idea of an enrichment of society really right across the board is something that isn't considered. I mean, I think your idea about rigid borders it's sort of borders in reality and borders in the mind. That mm. So people get yes. overwhelmed by that, that the that the idea of, the, of enriching the community and creating variety yep. and extraordinary capacity. I mean, even if you think about Australia and all the migrants that have come here and the, the amazing achievements, you know, the mm. fact that it's very successful or has been a very successful multicultural society, um, you know, has done brilliantly well. Why can't that continue for the future? Yeah. You know, so so there's so many very positive things. Um, you make clear in your book, just as a sort of final question, that you're not aiming to provide definitive policy answers to how governments should approach child refugees and asylum seekers, but that you hope to broaden the conversation around this topic. And, you know, as we've discussed, you identify narratives of care, control and cruelty that arise from ordinary people in positions of authority and power, making life-changing and often life-denying decisions about the lives of children. Can you say more about what sort of conversation we need to be having? How can we broaden the conversation concerning the children at our borders? Yeah, I think one of the things, the, the you know main thing I want to get across in this book is that our conversations have become too rigid and there's really a lack of critical and creative thinking. Um, there's a lack of conversation around um, the, the place for those of us who are migrants, for those of us who aren't um, Aboriginal, 
Um, we, you know, we give an acknowledgement of country, but what does it actually mean and what, what would it actually mean to recognise, to, to truly recognise Aboriginal sovereignty? And, you know, what that means is to recognise also the illegitimacy of colonial sovereignty um, and the illegitimacy of our political power, um, which to me means that, yeah, we have to take a step back from offering definitive answers to what exactly should happen on this land. And that's why I refuse uh, to take on that task um, because it's not my it's not my place to say who should live on this land. Um, it's also that, you know, these oftentimes people will sort of say, well, you know, should we increase the in- refugee intake by, you know, 5,000 people a year? And it's like how do we reduce people down to these numbers? And that's a, sort of a game that I refuse to take part in as well. Um, so I think, you know, Instead, what I'm trying to offer is different modes and modalities of thinking, different ways in which we can have these conversations. Um, I think, you know, what's really clear is that there isn't in public discourse uh, very much critical thinking. There isn't much openness to new ideas. There isn't much openness to, um, yeah, really, you know, seeing the the enormity of the task at hand. Um, It's not we're not going to suddenly become, you know, a better country that is more welcoming to refugees by letting in 5,000 more people a year. Um, What's needed is something far larger than that. Um, And I think we need to grapple with the enormity of that task. Um, So I think, yeah, this conversation really needs to be around the enormity um, of the problem. and not to see that as, you know, that it's too difficult, uh, that we can't do anything that, you know, that as an excuse to sort of take a step back and be like, well, you know, if it's too hard and it's too big, it's it's we can't do it. I think we need new political ideas and we get those political ideas by talking about them more and more and by reading new texts and by listening to new people. Um, and I guess that's what I really hope this book can be part of that conversation of broadening um really broadening our imaginations of what's possible and how we can think in new ways, which I think is, to me, a really exciting prospect um, and should be seen as an opening um, and something wonderful and invigorating, not as something that feels heavy um, and too hard. Well, I, you know, I, I so agree with everything you're saying, Jordana, and you put it so extremely well. Uh, I, I think it's about seeing what seems like a problem as a great opportunity. Exactly. And 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 starting with different kinds of conversations is 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 the place to start, and and hopefully you know people can be encouraged to do that. So thank you so much for your time and um and very you know lots and lots of good luck with the book, which is really splendid. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. 
That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.